Hey, uh, we're wrapping up this series uh, this 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 weekend, this Sunday. Uh, we're preparing for Lent, and can you believe Lent is here almost? Um, Lent is that that season that is six weeks leading up to Easter, and so a week from Wednesday we will have our Ash Wednesday service, and so just a week and a half away, and so we'll be here seven o'clock. We'll be taking the uh, the the palm leaves from Palm Sunday this past year. And we will be burning them into the ash that will be imposed on us uh, as we ponder uh, repentance and such, getting into the Lenten season. So if you aren't used to the Lenten season, it's it's six weeks. A lot of people give something up for Lent. How many of you have observed Lent before? Let me see your hands. Okay. Um, Maybe you've given up something that is meaningful to you or something that would give you more time to focus on God. And now you have this examined prayer that you can decide to incorporate into your life or your Lent practice. Some people have the habit of adding something into their life for Lent. They kind of go the other direction. And that's a great practice. The, The only goal, of course, is to have a stronger, more thoughtful awareness of God as you uh, prepare for the Easter season. So, and the celebration of the resurrection. So just keep that in mind, a week and a half away, Lent is is coming. So this analogy of the instant replay has been pretty helpful. But all analogies have their limitations, and we've run uh, the complete course with this analogy. It's time to, to cut it off. And the reason is because there are some things about this analogy that don't work. So I don't know if you watched the, the conference championship games. If you saw it, then, then you saw some limitations of instant replay. And no doubt today, this, this flag will be thrown. And it'll be thrown on plays that don't need instant replay, but a coach is hopeful. It'll be thrown on plays that have already been decided before it even got thrown. In fact, There will be plays that will be reviewed that shouldn't be reviewed. There will be plays that shouldn't be reviewed that are reviewed and vice versa. And even with all of these reviews happening and flags being thrown and coaches pitching a fit and blaming the refs and saying they stole the game. And this has happened, of course, every season. It happens every few weeks, whether it's basketball or NFL or college. It doesn't matter. It happens everywhere. There will be, in spite of all of these things happening in the instant replay world, okay, there will be a pile of refs huddled around a, a monitor. There will be a team in New York with the best technology available known to man with 18 angles that are perfect crystal clear they could count the blades of grass on the field with these angles. And in spite of all of that, there will be people in that room that have the entire rule book memorized and they will still get it wrong. And we see it from the comfort of our armchair quarterback seats and they will still get it wrong and they will completely lose focus. And so it won't be about the game. It's not about the athletes. It's not even about the stories. It's about the calls that were made. And when they lose focus, even though they have the entire rule book memorized, they will have completely missed the entire point of the deal. And if you're not caught up yet, I'm not talking about football anymore. (laughs) This is the temptation whether it's sports or walking with God or pursuing health and vitality in a relationship, we often get distracted and we focus on the most minor of things and we completely miss the point. 
So we have given you a, a tool. This tool is, is here on this bookmark. There's some around the room. You can pick one up at the Welcome Center as well. We've called it the Prayer of Examine. And it's named after a prayer that St. Ignatius of Loyola created many decades ago. And it allows you to just ponder and consider your life. You're asking questions about who am I? How are things between me and God? How are things between me and other people? And maybe a bigger question is, who am I becoming? That's our hope. Is the whole point of the series was for us to use this little instant replay analogy for you to find a tool that will help you reflect on your day and consider a conversation or an experience or a, um, an argument that you had or an incident at work or any number of things. Some, you're driving through traffic and you have these feelings bubble up and you're angry and you don't know why later in the day for you to be able to hit the pause button on all things and just invite God into the presence of a moment and say, Lord, what are you doing? What, what happened? Why does my heart feel this way? Where have I missed you in the day? Where have I experienced you in the day? Lord, are you trying to pull down some prideful places in my life? Are you trying to direct me to be more kind or more loving, more patient? All of these things. And this kind of reflection is what we've been invited to through this series. And it's what scripture invites us to over and over and over again. And I want you to know that this endeavor that we've invited you into, this task, this habit or spiritual discipline, it is absolutely fraught with terrible detours that you can take. It is, is fraught with distracting, even harmful, I, I would even call them uh, dangerous detours that you can take. And if we didn't tell you this as we wrap up this series, then it would be on us. It's important that you understand it and that you grasp it because if you're not careful, your efforts spiritually and morally, um, your efforts in your walk with God, you might just miss the point. Because when we miss the point, as so many have, and as you read the Gospels and the story of Jesus' ministry, apparently there were so many around him that that miss the point, it will take you away from the things that matter most. And this is not what God has in mind for us. And so what we want to do is go back to a foundational theological idea. We've talked about it before. It's a truth that is really at the very base of our faith, and it helps us understand where, we're, where we are and where we're going and why we're going there. And this whole idea of missing the point is in fact the very definition of one of the churches, historically big C church, or even small C church, one of our favorite things to talk about, which is sin. And if you grew up in church, you know that sin is one of our favorite things to talk about for some reason, but we talk about it a lot. We talk about what we do, how we do it, how often we do it, and who we do it with, and all the things that encompasses sin and how you shouldn't do it, and knock it off, and all those types of things. So let's talk about it. Sin is uh, this idea of missing the mark. And so in the New Testament that we read, the word for sin is this in the Greek, but then a, a transliteration is this word, hamartia. Say it with me, hamartia. And so when the New Testament refers to sin, it's talking about hamartia, or to miss the mark. And if you've been paying attention through this series and you've noticed that that's at least in part some of the focus of an examine process, right? Because we're saying, Lord, help me reflect on my day and maybe where I was on track, let's, you know, yay for that. 
And then maybe there are some times when I was off track or I've missed the mark. And what do I do about that? Or how do I correct that? How do I feel about that? And as you engage in that process, this is the theological idea that drives our desire to do what's good, do what's right. And so this sin idea, or this Greek word, hamartia, to miss the mark, is actually an ancient archery term. And the, the term, ancient archery term, means to actually miss the mark. It, it gives you this picture of an archer who has a quiver full of arrows and a, a bow, and he's, he, you know, ancient bow, not one of those fun compound bows, right? And he's drawing it back, and he's aiming for a part of this target. What's he aiming for? That's right, the bullseye, the center of the target. And his hope is to send it, send it across the field and hit the center of this target, but he doesn't do that. He misses it time and time again. And this is exactly what this term means. In fact, to sin, when it's described in the New Testament, it means that there was a mark and we missed it. We missed the mark. That's what sin is. And it's the feeling that you and I have often. We wanted this, but we got a different result. We hope the conversation would lead to something beautiful or wonderful or connective, but it took us down a different path. We started our day and our goal was, you know, today, here's what I'm going to do. Yesterday I ate horrible. Today I'm going to eat really, really good. Wrong day to ask, right? Super Bowl Sunday. But today I'm going to, and then we, end of the day, we reflect and we think, oh, I'd hoped for this, but I missed it. I went this direction. I have, in fact, what have I done? I have, say it with me, missed the mark. That's what I did. Now, almost all of our theology, in fact, almost everything you think about when it comes to what God wants of you, what he expects of you, what you hope for in your own life, almost all of it is based on an understanding of what God says, what God declares, or what his word proclaims is the center of the bullseye. What is it? Everything we think about sin, discipleship, sanctification, big fancy word for becoming like Jesus. All of these ideas flow from one simple theological truth. What is it that is the center of the bullseye? In fact, you would do well here just for about 10, 20 seconds just to answer that question for yourself. What were you taught in church? What do you believe is the center of the bullseye? In other words, Here's a way to think about it. When you miss the mark, what was the center of the mark? What was the center of the bullseye? And when you missed, what was it that you did that took your arrow off course? Sometimes, some of you don't miss much. You miss just like the little next ring around it. Some of us, our arrows find the field and the grass way out beyond it. So what was the center? What was the goal to name it? Most of our teaching and most of our understanding is around the idea that the center of this bullseye is, well, you should be able to read the whole thing, but you can't. It says moral perfection. Say it with me, moral perfection, that that would be the center of the target. And honestly, if you read a chunk of scripture, you might come to the conclusion that that's what God thinks as well, that moral perfection is the center of the target. And you might believe that. In fact, you might think that, well, you know, the 
Ten Commandments lead me to believe that, or the law leads me to believe this, that this is what God wants for me. He wants moral perfection. The, the scriptures say, thou shalt not lie, and then I lied. What was the center of the target? Telling the, but I didn't tell the truth, and so I must have missed it, and I find myself missing the mark. In fact, most theological systems teach this idea so strongly and so completely that we would believe that the ultimate goal is for us to live morally perfect lives. So how's that going for you? Well, we do one of two things. We either rewrite the rules so that we can live by them, and we feel kind of weird about that because they're right there in black and white, or we take the things that we have missed the mark on and we sort of hide them or drive them underground or pretend like they're not there. And the result, of course, is all kinds of fakery and hypocrisy, all kinds of things that lead us further away from the heart of God. But this is what we think. Moral perfection is what it means to miss the mark. And if you had this idea in mind and you engage in the habit of examine, then you're going to find yourself in the world of the Pharisees that Jesus interacted with in the New Testament and the Gospels. They had missed the mark as well. In fact, they had missed the mark so bad, Jesus had a funny saying about it. He said, in regards to you and your faith and the way you see what it means to live for God, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. This is how strongly you have missed the point. And he's describing this idea of filtering water. And he said, you, you have pulled out the smallest thing that you feel like is an impurity in your life. And then you have swallowed the most gargantuan thing that we can think of, this camel, and you have completely missed the point. You might remember the story of Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery. Remember that story? It's in John 8. You can read it for yourself. Some teachers of the law bring a woman to the feet of Jesus. She has been caught in the act of adultery, the author says. And they bring him to Jesus and they say to Jesus, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery and the law of Moses says that she should be stoned. What should we do? Well, they knew that Jesus taught about all kinds of mercy and love and grace. And, and yet this woman is caught in an act that the law of Moses requires a punishment. They probably had their stones in hand and Jesus ponders a moment and he waits and he ponders and he makes them kind of endure the silence. But then he finally just says this, well, anybody who hasn't sinned before, feel free to throw your rock at her. And then it's quiet and all of her accusers leave. And then he looks at the woman and he says, where are your accusers? And she says, no one is here. And then Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. And then he tells her one thing. Do you remember what he says? Oh, you do know. Look at that. Say it with me. That's what he says. Go and sin no more. So what he said in the Greek was, go and hamartia no more. Go in Hamartia no more. 
So let's use our language and say it. Don't say the word sin, but we'll use what we know the word means. Let's say the statement together. You ready? You can do this, right? You can put them together in, in just real quick fashion. Are you ready? Go and miss the mark no more. If it was, in fact, moral perfection that she's going for, that seems like an unbearably painful and terrible burden that Jesus would have put on the life of this woman. How long do you think she could have gone before she would have sinned no more, according to our definition of moral perfection? How long? Five minutes? Maybe a day. Some of you really holy people could maybe go a day. I don't know how long it would have been, but it wouldn't have been longer than the sun setting, maybe once or maybe twice. Even she, if she had this overblown, blue, overblown view of her righteousness, she would have surely thought, well, that didn't last very long at all. It can't be that to miss the mark means moral perfection, or it would have been unbelievably unfair and unkind of Jesus to say to her, go and, and sin no more. What is it? To me, to miss the mark. Look, if you think moral perfection is, is the goal, if you think the prayer of examine, let's just say it about me, if I think the prayer of examine is a fill improvement program, if you think it is about changing your behavior so that you don't do some of the things that you're pretty sure you wouldn't even tell your church friends that you do, if this is what you think, then you will find yourself in an unwinnable process that is devoid of grace and mercy and love. And you will feel, in one thought, condemned, and you will critique the behavior of others in an unthinkable way. So what is it? What is the mark? If you don't know, it's wonderful that Jesus laid it out very plainly and very simply for us. But understanding what that bullseye is, is the foundational key concept that has everything to do with walking with Jesus thoughtfully. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus replied, well, the question was, what matters most? What matters most? What's the most important law? And Jesus said this. Let's say the yellow part together. Are you with me? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he says this very plainly, and then he says this is the first and the greatest commandment. Well, it's not actually the first commandment, is it? The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's the first of the 10. But there are 613 other Jewish commands. And Jesus pulls this command, as had many rabbis of his day. He pulls this command out and holds it up as a key thing. This isn't the only time this discussion happens. It happens a few other times in the Gospels in very different settings. But when Jesus says this, he is drawing the people back and he's drawing us back to what matters most. And he's saying, look, if you have a target and you have a bullseye, this is the bullseye. This is the center of the target. If you're going to draw your bow and you have an arrow from your quiver and you're going to point it down the field and you want to hit something in the middle, it isn't moral perfection. It is this, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It is the first and the greatest commandment. If you're wondering what you're aiming for, it's that. 
If you're wondering what the goal is, it's that. What is this that? It is to love the Lord your God with everything you've got. That's it. That's the whole idea. It is, in fact, our relationship with God. It is the middle of the target. It is, and we've said this before using different words and different phrases, if you're going to hit the center of the target, it is union with God. It is walking with God. It is an awareness of God's presence. It is your posture towards God and all things spiritual. It is the hope that we would think like he thinks, love like he loves, and be like he is. Our passage from 1 John, that we would be like Jesus in this world. The shift in thinking this way from moral perfection to union with God has massive implications to how we see the world and how we see other people. And if you and I don't thoughtfully, daily, maybe more often than that, for those of us who have been trained in other ways of thinking, if we don't identify the bullseye of the target over and over and over again, then you will engage in a moral improvement, behavior-oriented program, and you'll be trying to tie oranges onto an apple tree, and it just won't work. They won't grow. It doesn't happen in any stretch of the imagination. If you ask any farmer worth his salt, what are you trying to grow? What are you trying to do? They won't tell you what they hope the end result is. They'll talk to you about the cultivation of the soil. They'll talk about what it means to plant and rotate crops. And they'll talk about what it means to produce and cultivate an environment so that the seeds that they throw out and that they till under the deep, dark earth will then be watered and grow and something incredible will happen. The fruit is never the hopeful end. Of course somebody who loves Jesus will lie less than they did yesterday. Of course. But what's the center of the target? Oh, it's moral perfection. No, no, no. It's union with God. It is a relationship with him. And so what was Jesus saying to the woman who was caught in adultery? What was he saying? Go and don't miss the mark anymore. What's the mark? Union with God. Well, what would that mean for her? Well, it might mean that if she pursued union, a good relationship, a a love relationship with God, that she might not allow herself to be used by somebody else to meet their own needs. It might mean that she might make a different choice who she spends time with and why and for what purpose. And so in the pursuit of union with God, we find ourselves open to what God wants to do in us, how he will grow us and how he'll change us. This is the center If you believe the center is moral perfection, then you'll find yourself being judge and jury of the world around you and yourself. Last week we said that there's a a parallel, in fact the same identity, the same ideas that intertwine between pride and insecurity. Well, this is true when you find yourself judging, judging others and judging yourself. I'm almost certain of this. If you find yourself being critical of the people you work with, it's probably because in some way you feel like you fall short. If you find yourself being terribly critical of you and not being loving toward yourself in any way, shape, or form, my guess is you find that to be very easily the case with how you feel about other people and the way they behave. 
because you have decided that your ruler that you're using, not just to measure you but other people, is all about behavior, how they act or how well they love or don't love. And so we find ourselves, pride, insecurely, judging ourselves and judging other people. And Jesus says that we have been set free from every bit of that. In fact, he he says it so plainly and so clearly that this is the heart of all spiritual habits, that it draws us into a walk with God, a relationship with God, and our union with God. It's where we find meaning, identity. It's where we find freedom from judgment. It's where we find love and mercy. And it's also where we find the capacity to love and accept others and help them know who God is by the way we love them. And so Jesus says this, but then he follows it up very quickly with this. it. So later I'll repent from saying it in church. Josh, you can't help me now. It's, it's, all, it's all done. But what it does say, you can, you can even see most of it for yourself. It looks good on the screen back there, but you can't see it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so Jesus ties this idea of loving God and loving ourselves fully and completely and connected together. Because we know what the center of the target is. Target is union with God. And what flows from it is love. And love is at the center of all of these things. And so as we wrap up, what I want to do is point you to two passages that if you have decided to make something like the exam in part of your day, that you can use them to give incredible texture and amazing detail for these things. And the texture that you'll get is from these two passages in the New Testament that will help us understand deeply what union with God results in. So I'm going to point you first to 1 Corinthians 13. The reason I will is because it gives us the definition of what? Love. For most of us, love is an intangible subject. It's a little hard to put our hands around it because we use love in a hundred different ways. And love has actual actions connected to it. Texture and depth and meaning. Give Josh a hand for giving us the whole scripture right there. He did it without even you knowing he was doing it. That's how amazing he is. And so love and the texture of love is going to give you a chance to ponder and consider how well you have not only wrapped up your identity in who God says you are, but then transferred that to the way you treat others, feel about others, and actually love them in tangible and practical ways. And so you can use this as you use the examine. And it's this. You know it. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. And then he sums it up, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. And so one of the steps in the the exam is to think of a time when you have felt an absence of God's presence. Of course we know God's always present, But there are times when we push God's presence away or we ignore it or we have blinders on and we go about our life and do our own thing. My guess is this. If Jesus says the center of all the commandments is love, then odds are you could probably use 1 Corinthians 13 to pinpoint 
what it was when love felt a little deficient for you. A moment when you were envious of somebody else and you felt it rise up. A moment when you felt impatient and somebody really needed just a little bit of grace to get their head around what was happening. Love is patient. Could be a conversation when you threw somebody's past back in their face and you then thoughtfully remember later in the day that, well, love, it does what? Oh, that's right. It keeps no record of wrongs. And in these moments, we don't find ourselves searching for moral perfection. We search for union with God. And we recognize, Lord, it was me that wanted to point out their sins and not worry about mine. And so, boy, I I can do better. I can fix that. Because, Lord, you forgive my sins. You remove them as far as the east is from the west, and I want to love like that. These are incredibly practical and and immeasurably detailed in terms of how we understand how love works. And so I found myself dealing with pride or doing something that's very self-seeking. And in that moment of desolation, or it could be consolation, these just happen to be unique descriptions I recognize that love and union with God are one and the same. And so maybe you do find yourself at a restaurant waiting longer than you should have, and yet you feel a sense of peace. And you decide that you're going to show some kindness to some people in the wait staff, and you remember that moment later in the day, and you think, well, that's unusual. I'm not very patient like that. God showed up and allowed me to experience this. And so 1 Corinthians 4 through 7 might help you as you live out the examine. And all it does is push you towards a tighter union with God that your love may flow like his. The other passage that you might want to consider as we think about what love is and the depth of this definition, well, love is in fact the very first fruit of the Spirit that is in Galatians, not in Matthew. Just so you know, I did my own graphics today. Nobody else did these but me, so all the mistakes are mine. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. It's in Galatians 5, for your reference. Love, and then he goes on to say, joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. My guess is, is if you consider the desolations or the consolations of your day, some of these things will come to mind. Some are mentioned in the other passage as well. But these are the fruit, not all of them, but all of these are fruit of the Spirit. These are things that God produces in us for the benefit of other people. It's the same for a tree, right? When a tree grows fruit, it's never for the tree. When you have fruit like this, it's, never, it's not for you. It's for somebody else. It's for your kid. It's for your coworker. It's for your friend. It's for your spouse. These are the fruits that grow, and they grow not because of your effort. They grow because of your union with God. And what that might mean, more practically, is that you're trusting God more. You believe he's with you, that he will never leave you. You believe that he'll give you what you need. You believe that in spite of your horrible week, that he'll show up again this week in good ways. This is what fruit does. It grows because the roots are deeply embedded in the soil. Because we found a way to allow God to interact with our lives and our relationships and our experiences. 
And when we do that, good stuff results. It's all him. It's because we kept our focus, the center of the bullseye, on what it means to have love, relationship with God. So let me guide you through a prayer that will sort of close out this instant replay series and allow you to experience just a little bit of this, okay? Let's pray together. You should bow your heads and close your eyes. Lord, we love you and we're grateful for this moment. Today may involve all kinds of interactions with people, relationships, good food and fun as we enjoy many of your good gifts of family and mercy. And Lord, our hope and our prayer as we go through this day that we would be thoughtful about what you desire for us. So Lord, we ask that you would give us the insight to know when we have pushed you aside and allowed our agenda to become more central. What we want or what we desire. Lord, we ask that you would give us a sensitive heart so that we recognize when our union with you, when our relationship with you is being pushed aside or ignored, when we have decided to move away from your presence. And Lord, we also ask that you would give us the consolation or the grace or the mercy to recognize when we have decided to live more open-handedly, thoughtfully, being aware of your presence in the moment. So Lord, yesterday as we found ourselves enjoying the, the beauty of your creation out on the ice, some of us from this church body, as I looked out across the landscape and saw the people that you had assembled for this day of fun and joy, I was amazed at how you're knitting various people together in relationships and, and how the beauty of your son on the landscape reminds us of the texture of your love and mercy that your light and that your love can reach to the, the most further crevices of our hearts that you love us not in spite of who we are but because of who we are that we're made in your image and the beauty of your creation not just the physical world but also the people who were bearing your image reminded me of your love for each of us and so we experience your, your consoling, your consolation in that moment. Lord, this week you will give us a chance to experience that again over and over again in a variety of ways. May we draw near to an awareness of your presence that we can walk with you with these things in mind. Lord, this week there will also be moments when we are tempted to rely on our own strength shoving your presence aside feeling impatient or angry or critical of others 
or maybe feeling that we don't measure up. We pray that your spirit would gently nudge us to become aware of your presence in those moments. Take a few deep breaths. Put ourselves in the presence of your mercy and choose to love instead of remembering the wrongs of others. Choose to love instead of giving in to the anxiety of the moment. Choose to trust you instead of taking matters into our own hands. Lord, we believe that your goodness is what pervades our lives. And we pray that an awareness of your presence would follow us this week. And that as you display and show your goodness and love to us, that we would walk with you with open hands and open hearts, fully surrendered. Lord, we pray that this goodness would flood to the Yondeo family, to the members of our team, and to the people in our church that are dealing with all manner of difficulties and crises. Lord, you know the depth of hurt or pain that we're individually and collectively struggling with. And we're grateful to be in your presence and declare that, Lord, you are good, and we trust you, and we surrender to you. And with these thoughts in mind, we sing these lyrics and we pray this prayer in the powerful name of Jesus. And we all say together, amen.